Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I speak with SAC Consulting's Seamus Murphy and we review the COP26 Glasgow Climate Conference, looking at what was agreed, the highlights, the disappointments and the commitments that will change the way that Scotland looks at climate change and biodiversity decline. Hi there, Seamus. How are you doing? Good, Alex. And yourself? Good, good. Yeah, can't can't complain. Um, I was saying the other day that uh, it was surprising to me that we've never had uh, you on Thrill of the Hill yet. So no, thank you for being here. Oh, no problem. Hopefully I live up to your expectations. <laughs> Seamus, for those who haven't, uh, haven't worked with you or haven't heard from you before, can you just give the listeners an overview of what your role is within SAC Consulting? Yeah, so I'm a consultant in the environment team, um, but most of my work kind of focuses on how we can reduce emissions uh, in land use to achieve kind of the, the wider targets that we have set out um, to become net zero by 2045, essentially. Um, and that's including different ways we can do that within agriculture, uh, other land use, like um, in the in the uplands where we've got a lot of peatlands and also how kind of land can be used to sequester uh, more carbon and the role that it can play in kind of these emerging carbon markets, biodiversity markets and that kind of thing. Fantastic. So a really exciting time for you then. Yes. Everything is moving so fast now. Um, there's there's kind of new things coming every couple of weeks. It's just such a such a fast moving area to be working in. Seamus, one of the things that uh, I wanted to, to get your opinion on is COP and uh, where we are in terms of um, being a year on from the conference and the kind of progress that you think that we've made. But I wanted to kind of set the groundwork a little bit um, before we get into that. So climate change is, is pretty much everywhere within Scottish agriculture and Scottish policy right now. Scottish government have some pretty ambitious targets for climate change mitigation and adaptation. For the listeners, in the last couple of years, can you just outline what some of these targets have been for Scottish government and comment on whether or not we've been successful in moving towards them? Yeah, so the the big the big kind of target is uh, net zero by twenty forty five. That's kind of the overarching um, target that Scotland has set out. It it, it was twenty fifty, um, and then because we're trying to be more ambitious, uh, we've set that target for twenty forty five. Now, what that means is all these different industri industries in Scotland are going to have to reduce their emissions um, to a point where our our, our sequestration, our, our carbon coming in is equivalent to the carbon going out. So it's, it's that balance between um, the emissions and our sequestration. Um, now, in agriculture, what that means is WWF have done some kind of work on trying to like calculate what that can mean will mean in a, in the agricultural industry we'll say and it kind of looks like about a 35% reduction in um agricultural emissions to achieve our our net zero targets um and that's kind of sooner rather than later um to to achieve that the interesting thing with agriculture is it, it's extremely difficult when compared to other industries to reduce emissions because of the nature of the industry, the the um the natural the natural processes that produce greenhouse gases within agriculture. So for example, uh your your um, methane from enteric fermentation, so methane from livestock, that's something that is a natural process um and and so it is extremely difficult to reduce those emissions um, we can't, well, we can, but we probably shouldn't alter the kind of how a cow is made up, we'll say. Whereas in terms of transport, another uh, high emitting industry, it's quite straightforward in the actual, um, in the, the kind of 
theoretical theoretical removal of that internal combustion engine and replacing it with uh, a, a low emissions battery vehicle. So they're the kind of challenges that we're facing in giving our, our, our in agriculture contributing towards that net zero ambition for 2045. It's, a, it's far more complex than other industries. But more urgent than it has ever been to address climate change, presumably. I mean, we've had historically high uh, temperatures this summer. There's been a lot of talk of drought conditions, maybe less so in Scotland than in other parts mm. of the UK. But, uh, you know, is this kind of weather going to become more commonplace, do you think? Yeah, like, absolutely. It's it's the, the, the all of the predictions expect uh, extreme weather to become more common in Scotland. So we're expected to have warmer, wetter winters and warmer, drier summers. So when we think about that, what that can, the actual impact on that and on the ground can be, you know, we'll say re- reduced growing season, um, livestock needing to be inside for, for that bit longer. Um, and those two things, as we know, are, are extremely that 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 will in that will mean that there'll be um, an increase in the feed required um, because we're probably going to reduce our yield during the summer through to because it's going to be drier um, and then in the winter we'll have to be housed longer so it, that's in terms of livestock but there's a lo- loads of kind of these extreme weather events that are likely to become more uh, common and farming is the coal face of it the other other in again going back to kind of the comparison between other industries but other industries may not be as prone to the uh impacts of climate change um but agriculture certainly will be and seamus this is thrill of the hill so how do you see climate change impacting the farmed upland environment specifically I, th- I think one one really interesting thing that um personally I'm really interested in, in in terms of uplands is the impact that climate change can have on the biodiversity of upland habitats um species that are kind of common in in the, in upland habitats particularly in Scotland are, are kind of very specialized you know they're they're there because they're they've been they've adapted to live in those environments and that could mean you know that kind of um colder wetter uh upland environment or in between rocks and these kind of things and as the impacts that climate change will have on those upland areas could force these species to either move higher if they're if they're kind of cold loving species that kind of thing um or if they reach the end, if they reach that point where they can't go anymore, it can have a real impact on the um, uh, biodiversity of kind of these upland areas. Similarly, in terms of like just uh, the agricultural context, and this is probably why throughout all of um, Scotland, and particularly kind of where you've got a lot of kind of uh, sheep, the increased the increased kind of um, warmer and wetter winters will likely have an impact on the ability of kind of uh, pests and disease to continue throughout that that season. You know, we we know we know that fluke is an issue, and the kind of occurrence of fluke or the the habitat that fluke thrive in may become kind of more common in in a in a in a in a in a future where climate change is um causing these warmer wetter winters similarly just in terms of frost if we don't get as much frost it's going to be harder to get out onto the ground and do do things that we we usually are used to doing um over the winter months um and these kind of things that's going to have an impact on how we manage these upland habitats there's also there also could well be positives to take from it um some of these kind of areas that are maybe is marginal marginal ground now due to the 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 the, the rainfall um 
um, or that the temperatures in in the summer kind of uh, if if we do have drier summers and we do have warmer summers, that kind those areas that are limited now could could end up seeing kind of increased yields in 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 grass growth and these kind of things. Um, it at the moment it kind of remains to be seen, but there's going to be a mixed bag of uh positives and negatives to take from it um ultimately i see it as the 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 majority is going to be negative um unfortunately so we 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 really have to do our bit um to reduce our emissions now and, and and play our part in protecting protecting these upland areas so seamus one of the things that i really wanted to discuss with you was the cop conference itself today for the listeners, can you just outline what COP is in the broader context of the international efforts to combat climate change? So the, the COP is the conference of the parties. Um, it's a United Nations kind of um, gathering of countries to try and come to agreement on how we're going to tackle climate change. Um, it has there's a, there's a kind of a history of these conferences that goes all the way back to the 80s and issues like uh, acid rain, which which I know when I was when I was in school there was all this talk about acid rain and how coal plants in the UK were causing um, uh, acid rain to damage woodlands in Scandinavia and all this kind of stuff, and those kind of wider problems um, that are at a global scale led to these conferences that try and deal with these global issues. The the hole in the ozone layer was another one that was really, really successfully kind of dealt with through banning the, the use of um, CFCs and stuff like that, that used to be in um, uh, refrigerants and in aerosols and th- those kind of things. And now they're completely gone. And as we, we know, the, the hole in the ozone layer is significantly reduced so they have a history of being quite successful similarly with acid rain is quite successful in in how um they have been used or the more famous cops uh have been the in kyoto where the kyoto protocol was agreed which was an agreement where countries kind of agreed on um on how they could um came to some sort of agreement on how we can try and attempt to tackle uh, these global emissions. Um, and then that was added to um, and upgraded and, and, and bettered in Paris um, with the Paris Agreement. And then, as we know, the last year, one of the most important COPs um, of the last of all of them uh, was in Glasgow. Um, and that kind of tried to build on the Paris Agreement. Um, within the Paris Agreement, countries are countries have to had to make targets uh, or set out their targets for emissions reduction. How they were going to um, achieve uh, net zero, how they were going to or, or set out what they were going to do um, or what their targets were and how they were going to achieve it. Under that, they had five years to set those targets. So year five was COP26 in Glasgow. So that was kind of all these countries coming together and basically saying, right, how how are we going to do this? How are we going to, how what, what are we looking like? When we put our, all of our emissions reduction targets together, what are we actually achieving? Are we, are we achieving the below two degrees warming that is, our target under the Paris Agreement. Um, and we kind of found out at COP26 that we're not quite there. Um, I think, I, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but I think we're at about 2.4 degrees of warming um, with the uh, targets that were set out at COP26. So that's kind of a brief overview of 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 COP, um, of what cops generally try to achieve. In terms of what has come out of Glasgow, Seamus, 
my awareness of these COP conferences really started with the Paris Climate Agreement um, and uh, and the agreements that, that came out of that. I, I know in the last couple of years, the Paris Agreement has had a lot of coverage, um, particularly over America's withdrawal from the, the Paris Agreement. I, I wonder if you could just comment on the effectiveness of the Paris Agreement and whether or not you were hopeful about getting some kind of Glasgow Agreement? Yeah, it's the, the the Paris Agreement. It, what it sets out is 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 good. Um, what it ho- hopes, what it sets out to achieve. But it, essentially, you know, all of these things are are targets, and a target is great. But if if we don't act on the targets, or if if we don't um, kind of continually monitor and continually like update um, our targets and try and Use use the te- technology that we have and every everything at our disposal to achieve the targets. And then having a target is completely pointless. So, what was really important at Glasgow was that was the next step was we've got the targets right. Let's do. Let's act. Um, and that was kind of what Glasgow was was all about. And to be fair. A lot of what came out of Glasgow um, was quite encouraging, I, I felt. Um, some people did kind of feel that it was a bit of a failure. But personally, I think the the uh, methane pledge, uh, which obviously will kind of will, will, it will likely affect farmers, which was a 30% reduction in methane emissions by 2030. Um, the UK did sign up for that, so the UK have committed to um, reducing the methane emissions by thirty percent by twenty thirty. Um, that that's something that the, all these pledges came out, but they weren't actually they're not actually linked to um, the Glasgow Climate Pact, which was the uh, agreement or the update, we'll say, of the Paris Agreement that came out of COP26. Um, There was also deforestation pledges, um, a lot of commitment from private finance and financial institutions on their pledges to to reduce emissions um, and pledging actual uh, money as well, like you know, billions, trillions, I think, of, of dollars towards achieving these things, which is really, really important um, and really necessary. Uh, all of that stuff happened outside of the official Glasgow Climate Pact. That was the was the um, was the culmination of the COP twenty six event. And Seamus, there has quite rightly been some criticism of some countries who maybe didn't attend the conference and this feeling that the international community is really up against it if we can't get everybody on board. I wonder what your position is on that. Yeah, I, I think we 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 shouldn't we shouldn't think that just because some other um, countries similarly it's, it's the same for for the for a farmer. You know, just because the guy down the road might not be doing his bit doesn't mean that we shouldn't do our bit. Um, that's the way I see it. Um, we have benefited so much from the burning of fossil fuels, um, climate change. How we've got to this point was the, was the development of our economies in, in, in the Western world. I completely understand why a country like um, China uh, may not or may feel that they should be allowed to develop the way we did um, and get the benefits of that. Um, I do think, though, that it's our job then to encourage them to do it sustainably, to do it in such a way. And that's all. That, that All of that kind of conversations, the, the, the detail of all that is all a huge part of COP. Um, it's it's all trying to like find a, a just a just way of of uh, bringing about emissions reduction while not completely damaging the economy, which um, an economy of all these countries, which obviously in itself, um, a lot of climate activists would suggest that it's not just 
you know, capitalism is actually the problem in itself. The the, the way we we work um, is actually what what is causing climate change, um, and that we can't find a solution using using capitalism. I think we can, but um, it's yeah. I, I I I think everyone has to do their bit, and we can't point down the road and say, well, what we do here is irrelevant because you know india china these countries are going to continue to emit we have to be leaders in this and show them how we can um, achieve emission reduction with a thriving economy um, and ensure that they can see a pathway to low a low carbon future whilst continuing to grow It's it's a huge challenge huge challenge I've often heard it said that uh, farmers in this country, in terms of their carbon emissions, it's two and a half times better than the global average. Now, I can't say for certain whether or not that's true, but it does strike me as a bit of an opportunity to do that kind of knowledge transfer with the the developing world and and these other up and coming economies. Yeah, absolutely. And if I'm I'm a farmer, I'm thinking, right, my... my, uh, carbon footprints we'll say is is lower than you know like what i don't know what what percentage use there but you know we'll say 75 percent of of other farmers in the world there's two things there yeah there is there's yeah let's be leaders let's go out there and and kind of help other countries to reduce their emissions similarly and that's going to be challenging because as we know every single farm is different even just uh, within this country, never mind um, within different continents and and things like that. But also, it's a huge opportunity because it's a marketing opportunity. You can say that. You can say, "Well, we're we're low carbon. We're we're some of the best in the world at producing these products, um, and we do so sustainably. And, and we'll continue because we we have to, as as you know, like we're going to have to get better." It's not just going to be, this is the way we are and we're going to stay this way and isn't it great because we're still better than the 75% of it? No, that's not going to cut it. We're going to have to continue to reduce our emissions um, and possibly enhance biodiversity, all of these kind of things that are, are coming down the line through kind of policy and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think there's huge opportunity for knowledge exchange and also just to take advantage of our position. Seamus, did you have any particular highlight of COP that you think more people should be drawn to that you want to spotlight? Yeah, so the the most important part of the of the Glasgow Climate Pact that I I kind of um think is really important, really useful is the nationally determined contributions which the NDCs which are essentially a country's pledge of emissions reduction and that's what all gets kind of calculated together to see where we are in terms of our um if we're going to achieve the below two degrees or 1.5 degrees or you know where where we basically are that kind of um tells us gives us a good um idea of of where we're where we're going and it allows the country as well to kind of reevaluate their own contributions we'll say now previously under the paris agreement that uh, uh, an update of the NDCs had to be done every five years. At Par or at in Glasgow, there was uh, an update made to that that these things now have to be reviewed and updated annually. So for me, what that means is that previously the m- most important cops were going to be the ones that were five years it was those five years when the, these ndcs were reviewed so that's why cop 26 was kind of that important it was it was that five year five years since paris um now every year annually they have that extra level of importance so it's going to shine a light um on where we are on an annual basis so for me why that's important is because that means that a country like 
the UK will say where, you know, well, at the moment, governments are changing, like, I don't know what, but um, where kind of leaders come and go quickly, they maybe don't have to worry so much about it because it's five years down the line. Um, now, it's an annual thing. So scrutiny is going to come from the international community on an annual basis if countries are not pulling their weight and not um, not meeting the targets that they themselves set out. So I think that is the most important for me as a, as a as an environmental consultant and someone who's concerned about about the impacts of climate change i think that that is a really really uh, positive step that came out of glasgow so if you like that raises the issue of climate change above party politics yeah you'd hope so anyway um it's not like that's one thing like you know climate change isn't a it's a it's a uh, bipartisan kind of issue like it doesn't no one should be um making it uh a, you know a, a labor issue or a tory issue or something like that it 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 affects everyone equally um so uh, yeah it it makes sure that no matter who's in power they're going to be scrutinized and Seamus, just for a bit of balance, were you disappointed by anything in COP? Was there anything that you'd hoped to see that wasn't there or something that perhaps wasn't as strongly emphasised as you would have liked? Yeah, to, to be fair, in, in the run-up to it, um, I was quite disappointed um, by the lack of the the lack of agriculture, land use, forestry, these kind of things didn't seem to be playing a key role. Um, and as a, quite a significant emitter of greenhouse gases, as well as being a, a significant um, store or um, sink in, in terms of land, soil, I felt that it was kind of overlooked. And I know that others in the industry felt similarly i know um nourish scotland had a, a kind of a um an event running alongside cop in glasgow here and that focused on the uh, on agriculture and land use and i i felt that was that was really good it was it was really useful and i think some of the the outputs to that are still online if anyone was interested in going and look but um it shouldn't have been outside of it you know it should have been a, a, a key part of the actual the actual um uh, event itself um, and yeah there, I suppose I was a little bit disappointed that you know we didn't get huge commitments from China or India um, and the, these big emitting countries but it, it was still I think overall quite a successful move in the right direction we'll say Seamus, I was just going to ask you what uh, what you felt of agriculture's representation at COP. So you've kind of covered that. <laughs> but uh, my next question to you was going to be, has Scotland committed to anything off the back of COP that you think is particularly promising? And and if so, how are we, how are we moving forward or progressing on our own targets and commitments? Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to... Um it's hard to know kind of on an, uh, it's, it's too soon we'll say to be able to comment on how we're going towards our own commitments because it's, it's kind of like um, the, the way we, the way these things are measured, it's a couple of years before we'll say, we can say that, you know, agriculture has reduced emissions or, or, or these kind of things, but in general, agriculture is reducing its emissions. Um, now the reasons for that are, probably not because we're um actively doing things to reduce emissions it's that's going to play a part because we are but i would say a lot of it is to do with the fact that the the amount of livestock in the country is is declining um so that that's going to have an impact um regardless of of what we do um but that's not necessarily a good thing um I would say, and I know a lot of farmers would agree with that. Um, but in terms of other kind of pledges and stuff, the important stuff is really the money, I think, and the funding that was pledged around COP. Um, so I know a lot of um, 
money for uh, peatland restoration and a lot of kind of commitments towards peatland restoration and um, forestry planting and these kind of things were um, highlighted or, or set out um, during COP26. I don't think that they should be kind of seen as something that's in competition with agriculture. I think that for the most part, if 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 you've got peatlands anyway and they're degraded, they're probably not going to be productive uh, agriculturally. And the best thing you can do, they're a, um, a huge, a huge asset for us in in reducing emissions. And in terms of biodiversity and these kind of things, I think more money that we we have to restore peatlands across Scotland, I think is, is going to be hugely beneficial. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of, of peatland restoration and, and what it can do, the multiple benefits it can provide. And I really don't think that there's any negatives associated with it in terms of for, for the landowner, we'll say. Um, Forestry obviously is a little bit different, but I do also think that there there has to be ways that we can increase forestry within the farming system. We'll say that can help to do do the brilliant job that our, that forestry does in in sequestering carbon um, and and being again having that kind of biodiversity benefit while also providing the benefit to agriculture so like just shelter belts things like that um and when i say forestry it doesn't necessarily need to be hedges and doesn't need to be large things the issue i would have with that and i think you'll you've probably talked about it before alex is that funding for these kind of smaller schemes doesn't seem to be just there yet um and that's what what farmers probably want and, and need so if we get get that balance between the large commercial plantations alongside these um smaller useful useful in many ways plantations that either you know riparian along a on, along a, a river that are is managing flood water you know s- sequestering carbon creating a, a a corridor for wildlife um reducing soil erosion from the agricultural land and not really having an impact on the productivity um or profitability of a farm that it's it's on that's the kind of the dream really but um we're probably not quite there yet with the funding the mechanisms that are out at the moment but i think that will change do you know it's really interesting that you mentioned that so i don't it would be an exaggeration to say that i have that conversation on a daily basis but certainly on a weekly basis there is some farmer who phones up and says i would really like to put in a hedge but there's just no small grant available for that. And and it's those little things that will have the, the landscape scale um, impact over time that, that I think is really valuable for, for farmers. And like you say, if they can utilize land that isn't in active production already um, or, or, or better safeguard it for, for the environment, then, then I think that can only be a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the whole kind of landscape approach is a really good one that we're probably not not doing very well at the moment you know because if in terms of biodiversity anyway you know if 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 one farmer has hedges a great 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 hedges um but then all around them is nothing it's it then it's just kind of an it's it's an oasis it's 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 still really good that the hedges are there but wouldn't it be great if everyone around would have the same kind of um, hedges or the same level and create that kind of corridor, that connectivity for for wildlife um, to be able to expand um, and even just increasing the the diversity in in the in the DNA of of the the wildlife that is within that area? There's there's so much benefit that can be done for that looking at things from a landscape scale um yeah hopefully we get there one of the other things that you said that i really liked um and it gives me an opportunity to plug one of the other podcasts um was about the woodland and um it's been some time now but ben law was uh, was on the podcast uh, a number of months ago and he talked about needing to achieve the normalization of trees in the farmed environment 
Um, and, I, and I just, I really like that, the idea of the normalization of trees and that uh, trees are not necessarily in conflict with agriculture and, and they can be part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually, um, I, I've actually got a project, another project that I'm working on at the moment as well. That's looking at um, assessing the carbon that is stored in in trees because at the moment, and I'm not, it's it's not to to get a payment for that carbon, but it's just so that the farmer can maybe look at the trees that are already on their farm that are you know old trees that've been there for fifty years or something like that that are scattered across. The landscape, um, and just kind of say, right, well, they're they're having, they are storing carbon. They may not be bringing in new carbon on an annual basis like a, a new plantation would, but they still have that that kind of base store of carbon in their biomass. And what this pro- new project is trying to do is kind of calculate that using um lidar which is a, a remote sensing technology um uh, there's some work been done in that in, in northern ireland already and we're kind of trying to to do that so that we can give give farmers an additional thing to value those trees on that farm so they can say well do you know what that tree it's offering shade and shelter for my livestock um or it's a, a windbreak on an arable farm it, it's it has a purpose agriculturally. Also, it's storing carbon for me or for, for the wider society, we'll say, is providing that ecosystem service. You know, it, it has a biodiversity benefit and it's kind of trying to look at it, trying to trying to change the way we look at these things and say, oh, that's actually providing, that's doing a really good job for me and for everyone else. So I'm going to keep that because <laughs> that's the key we just don't we you know we want to keep the things that are do we want to keep the things that are already providing these services and grow and enhance them if we can absolutely Seamus I just wanted to to switch topics a little bit and move back to COP correct me if I'm wrong but you were there for much of COP in Glasgow and you were on a march is that right <laughs> I was. <laughs> I was up the front with Greta. Um, no, I yeah, I, I went on a few a few different marches um, when I was um, yeah. I, I live in I live in Glasgow, so I was here for the duration, and I was attending as much as I possibly could. And I went to a few of the the kind of climate justice marches, and the, yeah, it was really good experience. What do you think that farmers and landowners in Scotland need to understand about the people who are out there marching in Glasgow? I I think, you know, there have been some protests recently where the kind of general public might feel a little bit switched off with them. Now, what, what, what do farmers need to understand about the people who are quite rightly expressing their concerns over climate change? Yeah, I think... The way I the way I look at it is that everyone is everyone thinks they're doing the right thing, you know. Everyone everyone wants to play their part and 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 do the right thing in in terms of what we need to do to reduce emissions and and effectively kind of tackle climate change. A lot of a lot of these marches are kind of focused on um, government because. And this is a huge area that I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of a, a big advocate for. It's such a big climate change is such a huge topic that the individual cannot really achieve what is required. So it has to be government, it has to be policy led, it has to be, and that's kind of what we're seeing in agriculture. It's we're getting there, um, but it can't be to the the detriment of others in society. Now, I know that kind of probably what you're getting at is the fact that you'd have a lot of um, what might be seen as anti-farming people um, would be in would be in those marshes, or maybe not anti-farming. Maybe that's unfair, but anti-kind of um, uh, intensive agriculture um, people. Again. My opinion on that is that they 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 
to the best of their knowledge, their um, opinions are are are, are right. They're they're going they're they're just they see agriculture maybe as a high emitting industry. They don't really understand it, which is where the crux of the problem comes from. They don't understand what farming is and and uh, the multiple benefits that farmers provide whilst managing land to produce agricultural products they don't they don't see that link and that's the fault of well it's the it's there's a lot of reasons why that is but even just kind of poorly poorly researched or or or, or biased um television or, or kind of outspoken people that we we all know of that that um yeah the, it's it's hard to kind of solve that or, or kind of see that as um I, I don't know the answer to try and convince those people of other things i personally don't try to i kind of say well i'm gonna do i think that if agriculture and farmers kind of continue to do their bit um we shout about it you know that's our job really is to kind of shout about what's being done and that's like that's what we need to do but if we kind of continue to promote the good stuff that's happening farmers continue to do it and can even like keep going harder and improving and improving you know the it's going to come around like people people are going to see the benefit that's coming from um agriculture and also right now with with we'll say the, the the energy crisis and ukraine and these kind of things it has brought that food security element back up the political agenda whether whether that's going to change the opinion of people um of of, of people who kind of see agriculture as the bad guy in terms of climate change i, I don't know if it will but it, it, it at least in terms of politicians who make the decisions who we should care about because you're never gonna you're never gonna win an argument on Twitter, like so. And I don't, so I don't think we should try. I think we should just keep doing what we're doing. Um, the politicians are the people who are important, um, and it, hopefully, the current kind of situation has reminded them of the importance of food production in this country, and also then. That's not to say at the detriment of, of climate or biodiversity. I don't think so. And I, I think we can do both. We can be better at produ- producing food. We can continue to produce the same amount and if not more, continue to grow whilst reducing our emissions. Um, I think they, they can go hand in hand. So yeah, uh, I, I, I try not to kind of get into these kind of conversations that will... Uh, essentially lead nowhere and yeah if people want to believe a certain thing or, or want to convince themselves of a certain thing they're going to do it and i don't think it's our job or i don't think it's it's valuable to spend time trying to convince them otherwise don't know if that's really what you were asking but that's where I, <laughs> that's where i went <laughs> no no that that's absolutely fine um, don't don't worry and you did name drop greta there so i just want to reiterate in case she does listen to this podcast she is more than welcome to come on and discuss climate <laughs> change at uh, any point she's a she's a livestock woman sure she has uh horses i think that's one of her one of her big things she uh she she has horses in uh, is it sweden sweden she's from Sweet. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. She keeps she she's a big horsey woman. Well, if you can get it on a hill, you can come on the podcast and talk about <laughs> it. So, Seamus, I'm just going to draw the podcast a bit of a close, and I know we've had you on for for quite a bit this morning, and I don't want to keep you. But one of the things that I did want to get your opinion on was. Scottish government have indicated that they're looking to see transformational change in Scottish agriculture to address the the issues of climate change and biodiversity decline and i just wanted to get your take on what you think transformational change means at farm level maybe not uh, maybe not so much speculating but but give us an indication of the kind of thing that you think farmers should be looking at going forward to to make themselves more climate resilient i think it's going to have to include the the 
the full kind of um, spectrum of activities that 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 farmers are, are kind of already do on a daily basis, but offer enhance these kind of or uh, that impact will say carbon carbon dioxide or climate change so the um, emissions associated with agricultural production the food production which is a huge element and then the the the, the biodiversity so like the, the land management side of things and how how that how how the management of the land to produce the food interacts with biodiversity and climate change so on a farm level, I think farmers are going to have to get very, very comfortable with carbon footprints. That's as as standard. Um, completing a carbon footprint is going to become something that is 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 going to be a. a, a I, I don't know if it'll be a requirement, but it's it's definitely going to be something that if a farmer is thinking right. I need to do a carbon footprint right now. I would be like, absolutely yes, you do because you need to get used to it if nothing else it's going to be a really it's a really valuable thing to have um and what i always say is that one carbon footprint in isolation is is pretty useless and i don't mean that in terms of um useless for for the for the farm for the farm it can be useful but in the wider context of everything if you have multiple carbon footprints over multiple years you can tell a story it adds that narrative to your farm. So, for instance, if if you've got a, a, a liming plan um, and you're continually liming, that can have a huge impact on your carbon footprint. If you have one, if you do one year and you just have a, a a figure for one year and it's it looks really high, if 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 uh, a, a a retailer or uh, you know government come asking questions about that you need to have that narrative and i think that's where a, a carbon footprint is really really important um to be able to tell that story for your business um on an annual basis so that's one thing that i think is going to be become if 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 it already isn't um a really really common normal thing for farmers to do so Seamus, we've talked a bit about COP26 today, but um, COP27 is on the way. And um, I was hoping, can you give the listeners a bit of an idea of where COP27 is taking place, maybe what to expect and whether or not we should be excited about it as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, COP27 is taking place in um, Egypt, in Cairo, Um this November, I think the sixth to the eighteenth of November, so same same time as last year. Um, I expect that it will be as big or as kind of. Um, I would hope that it will be as big and kind of attract as much attention as um, COP twenty six did. Um, th- that hopefully will be because of uh, the. NDCs um, that I uh, mentioned previously. Yeah, and uh, what I would expect, I wouldn't expect a, a kind of a, a huge change, a huge kind of agreement or, or pact that we um, we, don't, we we won't expect any more kind of agreements. It's kind of updating the Paris Agreement and, and seeing where we are based on the Paris Agreement. Is the Paris Agreement is is the is the key, um, and all these cops are going to do now in the meantime is make sure that we're on track and make sure that we're um, achieving the, 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 the goals that we've set out. Um, I probably wouldn't expect as much from um, outside of the actual agreement itself as we had at COP26, just because COP26 was such a hugely anticipated um, event. But I'm hoping that behind the doors in Cairo, that countries will be um, doubling down on their commitments and really um, making sure that we are doing everything we can to achieve below two degrees warming, um, which we've set out in the Paris Agreement, and ideally 1.5 degrees, because if we go above two, like climate change is happening, whether we like it or not at this stage, we're just trying to limit the effects of it. Um, But below 
below two degrees isn't good enough for some for some countries in terms of um, the impacts that it'll have. Uh, so it, hopefully we can countries will commit to to um, keeping one point five degrees alive. Um, and yeah, we'll see. And Seamus, one last question. You yourself are a podcast host. Um, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to to maybe discuss some of the work that you do with Farming for a Better Climate and the Changing Farming, Changing Food podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Farming for a Better Climate um, is, a, is a, a Scottish government um, run project where there's there's loads of things going on. We we had focus farms for years where we went onto these farms and um, carried out carbon footprints before carbon footprints were cool, um, and we helped those farms to reduce emissions and those kind of things. And there's loads of case studies up on the Farmer for a Better Climate website. Um, the podcast at the moment we we've just finished uh, uh, three three episodes on on carbon markets, um, where we looked at kind of essentially just a basic what 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 are carbon markets what's a carbon unit um and trying to increase the the knowledge uh the the knowledge base um of farmers um when it comes to to carbon markets so that's that's worth a listen as well we're we're also in the process of doing one uh, podcast on um energy uh where we're going to look at kind of um renewables uh where where we currently are with the with the energy crisis we'll say and then um what farmers have done in the past with renewables and what kind of renewables opportunities are, are coming up so that you can expect that in the next this month i think or in october um and the uh, changing climate changing food uh, podcast was a was a part of a project i was involved in a couple of years ago now um where we kind of looked at the wider food um, system we'll say and how how it can be better used to um, bring about uh, positive climate um, action um, and also looking at the all the, the stuff that's already happening and the, the really good stuff that 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 Scottish farmers are are, are doing um, to reduce their emissions um, and a d- different kind of perspectives on on what's what's environmental and what or what's sustainable we'll say um from an agriculture and a food point of view so that'd be worth a listen if anyone is is keen brilliant um well thank you seamus for coming on the podcast today it has been really good to sit down and have a chat with you how do people um interact with you how do people get in touch with you and do you want to to um, signpost anything else before we check off uh yeah you can send send me an email um on Seamus Murphy at sse.co.uk or you can get me on LinkedIn um, just Seamus Murphy and yeah should be should be able to find me on that great well Seamus Murphy thank you very much for coming on Thrilled Hill it's been great to talk to you thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrilled Hill if you enjoyed listening please like subscribe and follow this podcast leave us a review and let us know how we're doing And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below.